Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Book of Zephaniah, fourth from the end of the Old Testament. And I'm going to read the whole of chapter 1, but uh, our, the sermon is um, verses 14 through 18. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. And those who bow down on the housetops to the host of heaven... And those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom. And those who have turned back from following the Lord, and those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him, be silent before the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is near, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice, he has consecrated his guests. Then it will come about on the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes, the king's sons, and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments." And I will punish on that day all who leap on the the temple threshold, who fill the house of their Lord with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, there will be the sound of a cry from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the people of Canaan will be silenced. All who weigh out silver will be cut off. It will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. Moreover, their wealth will become plunder and their houses desolate. Yes, they will build houses but not inhabit them and plant vineyards but not drink their wine. Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So if you were like most Americans, you woke up this morning and wanted a therapy session at church, something to encourage you because your life is so hard, 
something to massage your shoulders because, you know, because we're all weepy because of the, the great struggles of living in such a prosperous land as the United States. You know, we had to struggle to put our shoes on this morning. It was very difficult, you know. My fat, when I roll over, you know, to reach my shoes gets in the way, and, and that, was, uh, that was the height of my struggles today. Whereas some people have, have risked their lives to come together to worship. Some people have, have been shunned by their family because they proclaim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and others just live in a land where it's, it's, it's pure suffering to confess Jesus Christ. And yet, um, and yet we come to a passage like this, and, and our thoughts very quickly go to the fact that the prophets were such killjoys. The prophets were, were so negative. Why were they always, always bashing God's people? And it's just foreign for us to come to a message like this as proud, arrogant, comfortable Americans. And yet this is the message that God has given to us today. This is the message that he has announced for all time. This is God's eternally true word. And so um, turn your laughter to mourning. Turn your laughter to mourning. Zephaniah prophesied during the reign of the reforming king Josiah. His prophecy likely came before Josiah did all those uh, works of, of reform after they found the book of the law, collecting dust in a corner of the temple, lying neglected. And remember that Israel, the northern kingdom, has already been dragged off into exile many decades before this by the Assyrian Empire. Now, the southern kingdom, though on the verge of reforms instituted by Josiah, is also just decades away from being dragged into exile by the Babylonian Empire. This empire, these two empires raised up by God to judge his people. It's quite clear that God's wrath is being poured out upon his own people for a particular reason. They've sinned. They have sinned. And their sin is particularly the sin of breaking the first and second commandments. You shall have no other God before me, and don't make any graven images and bow down before them, right? So he's, he's judging them for having forsaken him and served the, the idols and false gods uh, of the nations that surrounded them. And so Manasseh, Josiah's grandfather, had led had led Judah into the grossest, grossest forms of idolatry, even offering their children as a sacrifice to Moloch, the false god of the Ammonites. And for that and other sins, God would raise up the nations of, the, of those false gods and use them to punish his own people. Two things are very clear in those events. One, God sees... God sees and knows which nations have him as their God. And so they receive his blessing, right? And two, he is a jealous God. He allows no competition for his people's affections. 
He will not have any competition. God is in control of the world he made, and he will aim it and its history toward one goal, which is his glory. And anything that does not, does not uh, follow that aim, he, he will destroy. That means that he will honor those who honor him, and he will destroy those who dishonor him. That is the end of not only all nations, but of every single man, woman, child on the face of the earth. So Zephaniah announces the great day of the Lord, that the great day of the Lord is near. He's announcing a coming judgment, a cataclysm from the Lord brought about by the gross sins of his people. And what is, what is Zephaniah's purpose, purpose in prophesying this way? Well, in a nutshell, it is to awaken the unsuspecting people. To awaken the unsuspecting. That was often what the prophets were trying to do, is simply awaken those who thought things were going well. Awaken the unsuspecting. To call them back to God's law, to call them back to faith in God's goodness, to call the people to repentance before the wrath of God breaks out against them. Amos did the same thing, but he, he first of all, had to reach, uh, had to teach that the, the people, that the great day of the Lord was not something to look forward to. The great day of the Lord was not going to be a party for the people of God, at least not for Israel. It was not going to be that God would simply destroy their enemies, but his, his wrath would be diverted from them. Amos writes this in chapter 5, he says, Alas, You who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. As when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or goes home, leans his hand against the wall, and a snake bites him, will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? That's what Amos says. They were looking forward to this. The prophets were announcing the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And they were all like, bring it. And Amos says, no, not so fast. It will be darkness to you. There is a similar misconception today, isn't there? There's a coming great day, the final judgment, when all people will be raised from their graves to face their God. And most people simply assume that that day is going to go well for them. Right? Why do they assume that they... that? You know, it's going to go well for them when they have not served God or acknowledged Him or given Him thanks at all through the course of their lives, at any time in the point, at any point in their lives. Why do they assume that the day of judgment will be a day of prosperity for them when, when they have refused to submit to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son sent by the Father to rescue mankind from their sin? So many people assume a benevolent God, forgetting that God hates sin and hates sinners. Right? God is indignant against sin every day. How far did he go to bring his grace to bear upon a sinful people? How far did he go? He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. 
And so the father who's indignant against sin sends the son not to judge the world, but to save the world. Right? But so many assume that when they die, though they haven't loved God's son, they haven't, haven't loved the one whom the father sent, that God is going to love them. But God is a jealous God. He does not treat sin lightly. It is neither it is it is it is either punished eternally or it's punished in the sun. So many people make false assumptions about the benevolence of God. That's all we hear today is about the benevolence of God. Read the prophets and you learn about the indignation the utter hatred that God has towards sin. So many people disregard God's word and its directives on how to find eternal life and simply assume wrongly that God will be pleased with them when they enter his eternal tribunal, his court, without being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This false assumption is something that the prophets have been railing against for ages to individual men and to nations. So Zephaniah tells the people that judgment is coming. Verse 1, near, near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord, right? It's like he's just vamping on the day of the Lord. It's coming quickly. It's near, near the day of the Lord. Listen. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. Before they are able to concoct their newest idolatry, judgment of the one true living God would be upon them. So distressing is going to be that day that that even the warrior, the one who has courage, the one who can face the enemies of God, is going to be crying bitterly, weeping at God's judgment being poured out. That day of judgment would not be a pleasant day, it would not be an easy day. It would not be a safe day. A day of wrath is that day, verse 2. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. Now think for a minute. Think for a moment of the promises that our politicians make to us. If we just simply turn all of these adjectives uh, we just read to positives, then we're going to recognize much of the lingo of their platform speeches, aren't we? Happiness, ease, success, construction, prosperity, light, joy, peace, victory. Right? This is no doubt what the priests and the noblemen in Jerusalem were preaching in their sermons and, and in their platform speeches for, for Judah. And along comes the announcement from the true prophet of God, No, what is coming, what is coming is not prosperity and light. It is not good. It's not easy. And why? You have forsaken the way of the Lord. You have abandoned every word that God had given you in order that you might choose life rather than death. You've gone your own way, which in other words is to throw off God and what you consider to be his burdensome ways. And when God, God's ways are considered burdensome, 
God gives nations and people over to real burdens, which would be their own sins. So often we think that there will be freedom in throwing off God's ways. Right? Only to find out that the bondage that came after we threw off God's ways was excruciating. Some of us know this through, through personal experience. We thought life would be better when we lived it according to our own rules. But then, then as God gave us over to our sin, we really found out true misery. Right, The restless part of our souls that can only be satisfied with God himself burned within us. And we suppressed the truth. We dulled our senses. We defined our own morality. We, we chose death. Judah had thrown off God's law, and she would now reap the consequences of determining to live with her idols rather than live with her covenant-keeping God, right? who had made glorious promises to her. No matter what the priests and the noblemen were saying, this day was coming, announced by God's prophets, and it would be hell on earth. The judgment of God would be hell on earth, very literally. Here's what was coming, verse, seven, verse 17. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind. Notice that this verse changes to the first person. God is not speaking... Um, through the prophet now, but he changes it to his own voice from his perspective. I will bring distress. I will bring distress. God will himself afflict the people for their sin. This is punishment for idolatry, stumbling about, unable to avoid even the smallest of obstacles. Judah and her men would be incapable of fighting against her enemies. They would be like blind men stumbling about. Those, those enemies... The tools of God would have no mercy upon her. Blind men cannot fight. Right? Blind men cannot fight. All they can do is surrender. All they can do is surrender to the enemies that are coming upon her. Early on, God had warned his people uh, about this very thing, that if they turned away from serving him, they would be cursed in Deuteronomy 28, those curses, should they turn away from God, are listed. And the Levites are announcing these things from Mount Ebal, and that the cities will be cursed, the country will be cursed, the produce of the ground will be cursed. Many other curses are announced, and then it says, and you will grope at noon as the blind man gropes in darkness. These are the covenant curses coming to bear on Judah. Zephaniah is announcing that that cursing announced at Mount Ebal as the, uh, from, from the mouth of the Levites is about to be fulfilled, and that is no little thing. Why? Verse 17, because they have sinned against the Lord, it says very, very um, straightforwardly. If you believe that you are not a sinner, I mean, it's, it's almost laughable to, to even bring that up, Right? If you believe, but some people are so self-deluded, right? If you believe that you are not a sinner, you are a blind man and also know nothing about the, the utter holiness of Almighty God. Believing yourself not to be a sinner is a theological problem. 
If God knows every intent of the thoughts of your heart, if he knows not just all of your thoughts, but even every intent of the thoughts of your heart, then no man can stand. Scripture teaches us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is the Christian message, right? That we are all horrible sinners, right? All rebellious, all disastrously hostile toward God. And the other part of the Christian message is this. God is utterly holy. He does not abide in the presence of sin. That is a problem. Horribly sinful man and utterly holy God. It it was not until my conversion that I properly understood those two truths. Right? I, every moment of every day, sinned in terrible ways, envying, coveting, being angry, murdering others in my heart, lusting, etc., etc. And that that was displeasing to God wasn't a thought to me. But then my conversion came, and I realized that that was displeasing to God, the God who never sins himself. The church, I learned, is a hospital for sinners, right? And, and faith in God's Son is the only medicine. And the Father in heaven has prescribed that medicine, the death of his Son for sinners. That's the medicine, right? All have sinned, all are dead in their transgressions and sin, and God is rightfully angry and will always be angry forever. And he's also wonderfully merciful towards sinners in his son. How angry is God? Verse 17, and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. That's a pretty bleak picture, isn't it? That which is our life, blood and flesh, will be cast in the streets like dirt and sewage. God is not playing around. Right? God is very serious about sin. One of man's sins is he doesn't think sin is very serious. He goes about his day not facing great consequences, not immediate consequences for his, his lusts and his lies. And he begins to tell himself that sin is not so bad. But God is holy, holy, holy. And we learn this in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The only reason God's wrath has not broken out upon you is his forbearance. Those who don't think about this answer the following question of Paul in Romans with a scoff. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Your sin is God angry. Judah's sins had God angry. Every day God is angry against sin. And if one who is angry provides a solution... If that angry one provides you a solution for the predicament you're in, what ought you to do? You ought to follow that solution. You ought to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead and you will be saved. It's very simple. 
What will not save Judah at this point? Verse 18. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. Thinking that wealth will save you is the most foolish of commonly made mistakes. Right? God who created all wealth, who cast the stars into heaven in the very, and made the very elements in the ground, cannot be bought. He can't be bought. He is not impressed with your piddly little bit of productivity. Right? He, he, I mean, Scripture says that, that he, he spoke all things into existence. Does he need anything you have? Does it impress him in any way? No, it does not. Do you think your bank notes are going to impress him? On the great day of judgment. Solomon in Ecclesiastes punches a hole in the rich man's philosophy. He says, there is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. Riches, it says in Proverbs 11, do not profit in the day of wrath. Riches do not profit. But it's not so much that, that people think God can be bought off with their riches. Rather, it's that riches tend to make a man think that all is well and he need not think about his own sin and God's holiness. Right? It's a distraction from thinking about eternal things. He needn't be prepared to die spiritually. The rich man has a tendency to think that spiritual matters are unimportant because his mind is fixed on the things of the earth. The prophet reminds Judah and her people that that is a terrible mistake to make. God desires our hearts to worship him. And our riches mean nothing. Our riches were given to us by him. And that is where the prophet now turns, verse 18b. All the earth and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Think of that phrase, the fire of his jealousy. The fire of his jealousy. Judah had spurned God, and God's jealousy burned. It burned against them. And that is people would commit adultery after having been loved by God would ignite a burning that would end in their destruction. Right? God's love is jealous and those people of Judah knew it. They knew his love was jealous. The very second commandment had taught them this. Right? You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. And Manasseh had done all of those things and and. And Josiah hadn't cleaned that mess up. And so there's idols everywhere in Judah at this point. And then it goes on. It says, you shall not worship them or serve them. And that's all they had been doing. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So the fire of God's jealousy will burn because of their idolatry and their adultery. 
Fire, once it, once it has spread, is a relentless force, isn't it? Right? We've all seen pictures of wildfires which have a relentless force and destroy everything in their path. There comes a point when firefighters just have to, to, to leave and let the fire burn. The fire of God's jealousy is exactly the same as that, only more intense. When God has sent prophet after prophet, warning them to repent, warning them that there's a fire burning, and after it sends his son to put out that fire and, and to die for that spouse, you can expect that those who reject such a wonderful salvation will be swept up in the burning fire of God's jealousy. Such will be the end of all men outside of Christ on the great day of judgment. You may think that God is inactive, that you do not see much of his, his work in this world, that you do not really see evidence of, of his love or his wrath, but the prophet reminds us that God is very active right now. He watches, he knows, he hears, and he will bring every act to light. When he does so, will you be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, or will you try to buy off God, the Almighty God in heaven? So take these warnings, friends, as the kindness of God toward you. Take these warnings as the kindness of God toward you. Think rightly about your sin and about God's holiness. Remember that the cross of Jesus Christ is where the mercy and the love and the wrath of, of God come together, isn't it? It's where they come together, and it is our salvation. Either God will be angry with you eternally and justly, or he has already been angry with you and his son. And you are saved. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the work, the voice, the words of the prophets. We thank you for the reminder of your, your utter holiness and your hatred of sin. We thank you for the love you have had for us in Jesus Christ, that you have provided a way of escape. And Father, we bow before you. We love you. We thank you. We are ashamed of our sins against you since we have known your Son. And Father, we ask for your forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.